IPC, it's good to be with you again. We continue our series today on the Spirit's fruit, examining love last week and then now joy. And if you're watching this at home, I'd like you to pause this and read together uh, or by yourself Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, which is our main text for the day. The fruit of the Spirit text is found in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Once you've read Philippians 1, 12 to 26, then you can play the sermon and listen. Spirit's fruit is joy, joy. One of the guys I went to seminary with between 2005, 2008, he started about that same time making funny jokes on Twitter. He was really funny, in fact, and my wife and I uh, would every day just about go on to his Twitter feed and read all of his silly jokes. Well, he did so well at this that before he knew it, he had over 100,000 followers. He kind of became Twitter famous. And I especially loved his jokes because uh, he had lots of jokes about junk food and how much better junk food is, at least tastes, compared to healthy food. One time he tweeted this, he said, those people who say that fruit is nature's candy, have they ever tasted actual candy? I find it funny, maybe you don't. Hard to read the room at the moment. The fruit of the spirit is the real deal. It's the real fruit, but there is lots of candy and some of it has the flavor and the smell and the colors of the real fruit. But the fake stuff, the candy, is not going to nourish anyone. It's ultimately just going to poison and to kill. If the fruit of the Spirit is joy, then what is the fake fruit? What does secular society suggest instead of the real thing? What does religion recommend instead of joy? Let's look at the fake fruit of secular joy first. He who dies with the most toys wins. You heard that? It's kind of the thing we say about consumer society in our contemporary age. But theologians and philosophers and psychologists have all observed that toys, of course, course, are not the thing that people really want. Toys, cars, second homes, boats, clothes, bling, all this stuff is actually just the symbol of the power that it takes to acquire them. And the power is the thing. The power is the thing. Money's not the thing either. Money's just the tool that you can use to buy things, to demonstrate to the world out there that you have power. Social psychologists even tell us that Sexual assault is not even really about sex. It too is about power. And so if Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 that the three things are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, well, we might also say that there's money, sex, and power, but really the greatest of these is power. Power is not bad, but it just might be our favorite thing, our favorite good thing to make into an idol. 
In the Bible, we see power idolatry in a couple of forms, in the form primarily of empires, sometimes usually foreign empires, but often also among Israel's own rulers. And in our passage today from Philippians chapter 1, Paul shows, ironically, the limited power of the idol of power. What does power not have the power to do? That's kind of our question today. The Roman Empire in Paul's day had conquered the Mediterranean world. And after putting all that cash and even lives into this investment of conquering the world, now they want to cash in on their investment. At the time of Jesus, they were really doing it. The Pax Romana, they call it, a two-century period of peace and prosperity in the empire that allowed the empire to collect lots of taxes. In fact, how does Luke's Christmas story begin? Well, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a decree that all the Roman world should be taxed. This is what empires do. Spend money to conquer through power, gain money back through taxation, secure power. And into this world, Paul comes preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. His Jesus was a threat to the public peace. How? Well, for a couple of reasons. It created division among the Jewish minority population throughout the empire, because some went for Jesus and some didn't. And of course, Paul's message was more fundamentally that in the resurrection, Jesus, and not Caesar, is Lord. So Caesar used the power of the empire to suppress Paul's movement, and in so doing, to hold on more firmly to his power. But Paul shows us, you know, at least this time, the time when he's writing Philippians, it didn't really work. Yeah, they've got him in chains, but his message is spreading, isn't it? In the prison where he was chained, it's spreading. And then it's also spreading throughout the whole imperial palace guard. It's right in the halls of power and spreading. And in addition to Paul's spreading of the gospel, even in chains, the message, Paul says, verse 14, is continuing to spread outside of the prison among other preachers. Paul's captive, but this Christian gospel of his is still free. The prison sentence, he says, verse 12, has actually turned out to advance the cause of the gospel. Oops, it's not working. The fake fruit of secular society in the past and even today is power. And when power is the fruit of a society, it can never result in joy. The quest for power and the idolatry of power never results in joy. This is true at the individual level. When you're grasping for power and control, you can never have joy. Not when you're trying to get it, not when you've already got it and you're trying to keep it. Why? Because power can be gained and lost. When you don't have it, you're worried about getting it. When you've got it, you're worried about losing it. You've either become envious of other people's power or you're paranoid that you might lose your own. And that's why even the most rich and famous people are often rarely happy. It's not because their toys don't satisfy them. Of course their toys don't satisfy them. But it's because at a deeper level, the power that they enjoy leaves them wondering when they might lose it. And that's why also the most powerful empires of the world 
Nevertheless, use surveillance and aggressive policing and authoritarian intimidation because the idol of power makes you inherently vulnerable and it creates a sense of paranoia. When am I going to lose this? So individually or as nations, boy, is there a temptation to grow and to grab onto power, to make into an idol something that you can't live with and something that you can't live without. And when you do that with power, it can never result in true joy. So that's the fake fruit of secular joy. What's the fake fruit of religious joy? Well, just like we saw last week with love, it's not just secular people who are making themselves sick on the fake fruit of joy. Religious people, too, keep biting into the fake fruit that looks and smells and maybe even for a while tastes like joy. How? Well, in our passage, while Paul is in prison... What's going on? There are rival preachers running free throughout the region, and they're preaching Paul's message while he, they think, can't. And so verse 15, these phony preachers are motivated by envy and by a sense of rivalry with the apostle Paul. To these people, what matters is not the substance of the good news that they're spreading, which, by the way, they seem to be getting right, kind of, at least the letter of it, right? because Paul rejoices in it. It's not the substance of what they're preaching. It's the amount of recognition and prestige that they can get while they're preaching it. It's the feeling of the happiness of wielding spiritual power, of having people listen to you when you talk, of having people change their behavior and their beliefs because of your authority and what you're saying. And they saw Paul doing his thing, and they envied him. And now that he's in jail, they think, aha, this is our chance. We're in charge now. And they kind of succeed. They're tasting the power and the prestige of authority, Paul says. They've built their own pathetic little religious empires, and they've done it on the backs of Paul's and his friends' imprisonment. But now the trade-off is now they have to go to bed every night wondering if they'll be able to retain their power and their prestige tomorrow, or will someone else take it from them? Look, if you've been around religious people and institutions for long enough, then you've seen, haven't you, these pathetic little power grabs. They always pop up. Charismatic pastor who uses his personality and his persuasive power to push an agenda and to pull together a party that will support them no matter what. Or a faction of elders who use their authority to yank the congregation in their direction. Or a Bible study leader who seems knowledgeable and nice until their control over their group is threatened. Or a church council even who covers up abuse in order to avoid the painful process of repentance and accountability. It happens. I could give you a list of pastors who at one time I admired who've lost their ministries because they've been living off of the fake fruit of getting and keeping power, who've been consumed and destroyed ultimately by envy and rivalry, leaders who've had affairs, who've committed spiritual abuse, pastors even who've taken their own lives, so many of them, 
after struggling with their own superficial success. If you're in the religion business, what matters to you? Well, kind of what matters to you is budgets and butts in the pews. Well, if you're in the religion business, let's say an epidemic breaks out. Hmm? All your typical religious goods and services are no longer able to get to market. Maybe giving, therefore, goes down. In-person gatherings are taken away. The social life that you've enjoyed as a religious club can't happen anymore. And if you're in the religion business, how does this make you feel? It makes you feel, gosh, at minimum annoyed, maybe angry. Friends, I think that in some ways COVID-19 comes along and it poses the question to us. Are we in the business of providing and consuming feel-good religious goods and services? Have we just been taking advantage of the Pax Europea, the relative peace and prosperity of our region, in order to grow for the sake of growing? There's a false fruit in religion that tastes just a little bit like joy, but it's spiritual junk food. Does your faith, does our faith, Sing in the cellar of a Roman prison? Does your faith, does my faith, sing under a Swiss quarantine order? If it doesn't, then it might be religion. But you can't grow, and you can't grow joy in the soil of religion. All you'll get is fake fruit. We need to talk then finally about the Spirit's fruit of joy. Look, I don't particularly want to be in a Roman prison with Paul. I want to live in a cozy little village in Switzerland. But Paul's message to us today is that if my faith is genuine, I will sing hymns with Paul, even if I land in a Roman prison. Paul says, verse 19 here, that he is confident that God will bend everything that happens in this situation that he's found himself in into the service of Paul's deliverance. God's going to use it to deliver him. And this deliverance word here is actually the same word in Greek as salvation. And that means that in life or death, Paul knows that he is safe in Jesus' hands and he is saved in Jesus' hands. And this is the exact opposite of the fake fruit of both secular and religious happiness. It's joy. If you are growing in grace, then the Spirit will make you prepared to be joyful in the Lord in any and every circumstance. There's a pastor in my denomination, in my local presbytery, in fact, named Andrew Brunson. Some of you have heard of him. He was a missionary in Turkey for two decades, faithfully sharing the gospel and growing a small church. And after the attempted coup against President Erdogan, he was falsely accused of being linked with dangerous terrorists. And beginning in October 2016, he was imprisoned for 18-some months, a year and a half, 
And he testifies that he had to remember Paul in prison, in Roman prisons, and in the same region where he, Andrew, was ministering the gospel, and really for the same reasons as Paul 2,000 years earlier. And he remembered Paul's joy and his songs and his witness within the prison. And so he knew, I'm a pastor, Paul was a pastor, Paul had the gospel, I've got the gospel, Paul's in jail here, I'm in jail here, what do I need to do? Spirit of God, produce in me the fruit of joy in my life despite my imprisonment. And the Lord who called him was faithful, and surely he did it. And Andrew had joy and had the opportunity to continue to speak the word without fear. It's important to understand, though, because that sounds like a good situation, that joy doesn't mean the absence of sorrow. When we're dealing with fake, secular, or religious fruit with happiness, then you are either happy or you are not. Happiness can't exist at the same time in the same place as sadness. But the Spirit's fruit of joy, by contrast, can and does emerge and grow and bear fruit in the soil of sorrow even. Is Paul glad that people are out there taking his place and being envious and selfish about their preaching? Is he rejoicing that he is in prison? No, of course not. He's got joy, rather, because he knows that even in prison, he belongs to Jesus Christ. And even in prison, he can see that the good news of Jesus Christ is out there running free. Being a Christian does not mean that you never experience sorrow. Bearing the fruit of joy doesn't mean that you're not sad. Having joy means that when you are not playing, that you are not playing the whoever dies with the most toys wins sort of game anymore. Having joy means that you're not an emperor with no clothes desperately trying to consolidate power. Having joy means that you can not ultimately be imprisoned, neither by a jailer nor by death itself, because you know that the Lord Jesus, by his grace, holds the keys to the kingdom and therefore to your jail cell as well. If horrible things happen to you and you're not sad, then something's wrong with you. But in Christ, and after much wrestling and with many tears, when something horrible happens in your life, you will finally be able to say, in the midst of your sorrow that it is ongoing, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord who will not abandon me to death, and in whom I will be delivered. Hallelujah. And you might even be able to sing it. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, you are bearing the Spirit's fruit of joy. And lastly, we need to talk about the Lord Jesus himself, because he is the truest and best joyful fruit bearer of them all. The Lord Jesus is all-powerful, but he comes to save us, to deliver us, and he doesn't need to overthrow the Roman Empire to consolidate his power. His kingdom is not of this world. The Lord Jesus is rich, but he doesn't need to accumulate toys or the means to get those toys. 
because his father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord Jesus was ready to give up his power and to give up his riches and to give up his life for the what set before him? Did he endure the cross? For the what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of what? Well, the joy of doing his father's will, of expressing his father's love, of saving his father's children, of reuniting his father's beloved family. It was Jesus' joy to do the father's will. The man of sorrows was also, therefore, the man of joy. And even when he could not subjectively feel happiness, he put his life joyfully in his father's hands. And when he had died for our sins, when he had been raised for our justification, he experienced the joy of his father's words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And now, what is the joy that Jesus sets his eyes on? Jesus sets his eye on the joy that he'll have on the day when his church, like him, is finally raised to glory and united with him forever. The joy of Jesus is you and me in the fullness of joy. The Spirit of God set Jesus apart to bear the fruit of joy in his life and ministry, in his sacrificial death, and then in his resurrection. And Jesus right now, for you and me, lives a joyful resurrected life. And one day we'll join him in it. And we'll bear the fruit of joy for all eternity. In him, you and I will one day, if we abandon the false fruit of power and embrace the joy of belonging to Jesus now and forever, we will have our joy made perfect and complete forever. And because we'll bear the fruit of joy forever by the Spirit, well, we can by that same Spirit now in Jesus Christ. We must by that same Spirit now in Jesus Christ bear, even if there's sorrow, the fruit of joy. May it be so in you and in me and in our church, in Christ Jesus, both now and forever, to his honor and glory. Amen.